go to Romans chapter 12. Go, let's go to Romans chapter 12. So, <clears throat> get my notes here. Last week, we started a new series that we are calling Our Faith and the Culture. Our Faith and the Culture, okay? And uh, we, we need to understand some things that are going on that, you know, we're in a, we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual war. I'm not just saying, you know, in 2022, it's always been a spiritual battle, but we need to understand that the tactics and the strategy and the schemes of the enemy, if you're at war, you, you, you want to know if you're going to be successful in war, in a battle, then it is wise to know what the tactics of the enemy are, of your enemy, what his strategy is, what his schemes are, uh, and what he does. You know, the Bible talks about that we are not to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, ignorant of the devil's devices so that he does not outsmart us, so that he does not outmaneuver us and outwit us. So we need to know what his strategies are, what his schemes are, and the way he operates, okay? You know, the Bible says that Satan, you know, roams around like a roaring lion, First Peter uh, 5.8, that he walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, a lion does what? A lion preys on, he's a predator, right? And he goes after prey, a certain prey. And depending on what the prey is, is depending on his strategy. You know, if it's a uh, large, you know, buffalo or something like that, typically they'll try to, the lions will go in a pack and, and uh, go after the buffalo. But if it's a single, weaker, smaller animal, the lion has a different strategy. And what that lion will do is that he'll, he'll uh, go in a grassy field and he'll be real methodical and real slow in his approach, right? You've seen the nature videos and stuff like that. And he'll look for the weaker one, the one isolated by himself. And as soon as he gets close to that, you know, whatever it is, a little hog or <laughs> warthog or something like that, boar, he'll pounce at it. But he's slow in his approach and he sneaks up. He's very subtle and he's very sneaky before he just attacks. Well, that's the way the enemy is. He doesn't just, you know, show up a mile away and say, hey, I'm coming for you. You better do something. I'm coming. No, he's very sneaky. He's very methodical. He's very subtle so that you are not aware of him. And, and then when he does pop up, it's too late. You're trapped. You can't really escape. You can't get away. So we want to be aware of the devil's devices. We want to be aware of his schemes. And I'm not saying that we're, we need to be afraid of him. We don't need to be afraid, but we still need to be aware of his strategies. Amen. So let's go to Romans chapter 12. Okay, you are there. Romans chapter 12. It says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The New Living Translation says it like this, do not fashion yourselves to the world, but be changed in your nature by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove 
what is that good, that favorable and perfect will of God. So we, last week, we, we defined a couple of these words. The word conform, what means to, to fashion oneself after something else, right? After a, a thing of the same kind. To, uh, the Phillips, I believe, says to be squeezed into a mold, okay? And so that is what conform means, that you are likening and fashioning, pattering, pattering. Am I saying that word right? I don't know why it sounds funny to me. Pattering what you do after the world, okay? That is what conforming is. And then we also talked about the word world, that the word world is not talking about the planet or planet Earth or anything like that, but a more appropriate word today would be the culture. We are not to uh, conform, fashion ourselves to the culture around us, to the customs around us, to the behaviors around us, to the traditions that are around us. We are to not conform to the culture, but we are to transform by the renewing of our minds so that we look like God, we act like God, and we are living like Christians are supposed to live and operate, right? And so we have to understand that you know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan is the God of this world and he's the God of this world who's blinded them. Well, we could say it for sake of this series and this message that he's the God of the culture because that's really what it is. He is the God of the culture. He is the God of the customs of this world, of the behaviors of this world, of the things that they find, you know, uh, to them important and the things that they hold up. You know, the Bible talks about that the things that man esteems, Jesus said, the things that man esteems and he holds in high regard is abomination in the sight of God. Why? Because the things that, the, that men esteem, and I'm, when I think, talk about men, I'm talking about mankind, the things that mankind esteems, they are from the culture. They are from this world. And, and, and unless they have some godly influence and godly background, we know who the God of the culture is. The God of the culture is the devil. So the things that they think are good, the things that they think and, and uphold as this is, you know, something to be admired, this is something to be respected, we need to understand that no, that is from the God of this culture, the God of this world, and the things that they think are good and esteem and respect, we should automatically think, well, if they think it's good, there's probably something not so good about it. We should, the, the point I'm trying to make is that we should be on guard. We don't automatically assume that, hey, everything in the culture is right. No, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. And so we have to understand that there are things, influences around us that are uh, at work against us because the enemy is against us and he's influencing people out here. And our, 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 our battle is not with flesh and blood. The Bible talks about in Ephesians that, our, that the weapons of our warfare, or I shouldn't say that it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, okay? But against principalities, against rulers of darkness, okay? So we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but the devil uses people. And he uses things going on outside here, outside in the world, all right? And so we need to be aware that if he is the God of this world, if he is the God of this culture, that there are traps that he sets. There are traps 
just like a lion going after his prey, just like he is trying to trap his prey, that is the way the enemy is trying to do with us. And he uses things in this world to trap us. And one of the things that he does is try to get us to conform to the culture. He tries to get get us to conform so that we no longer look like God at all. And we are thinking and operating and acting and responding just like the culture around us, just like the world around us. And so we need to understand this, okay? Um, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was watching some social conformity videos, uh, and some experiments that people were doing. Uh, I think it was national geographic and some of these go back even to, uh, seventies, some, some research that people were doing about social conformity. And one of the things that I saw is they took a group of people, about 10 people, and they lined them up and in front of this line was two different signs okay so one sign had one vertical line maybe about 12 inches long or whatever one vertical line and then the second sign had three vertical lines all different sizes and each line each vertical line was labeled a so, so one line was labeled A, another line was labeled B, another line was labeled C. You guys follow me so far? So what they were doing uh, was an experiment to see if people would choose the line that everybody else chose. So they had one person that was not in on the experiment. Everybody else was in on the experiment. So, and they would put that one person who wasn't in on the experiment, who really the experiment was on them, they would put them at the back of the line. And so they would walk up to the front of the line, one by one, the first nine people. And even though the answer was C, C matched this line, because that was the thing, which line matches, which line on the sign with the three lines matches the same height and everything as the, the, uh, on the single sign, the line with the single, the sign with the single line, okay? And so everybody said A, but it was obvious that A was not the same size. So it was an obvious thing, but they said A, everybody said A. So the first nine people said A. Then when it came time to the person that the experiment was on, they looked and they said, hmm, a and they said sure yeah a so they went into the line and they did this with a number of different people and there's different that was one experiment i saw a similar experiment similar type of thing but they were in a classroom type setting and asked similar different questions you know which which letter and which number which line different things like that match with this or look like that or and uh when they asked these people why did they choose a they said, well, I didn't want to be, you know, one person said that I didn't want to be that dumb person. I didn't want to be that dumb kid that picked A or that picked C and everybody picked A, you know, or one person said, well, everybody else picked A. So I thought that I should too. So it, what happened was they were confused. They got into fear and it caused them confusion. And really what happened was they conformed they conformed because they didn't want to stand out. 
they didn't want to be the odd duck. They didn't want to be the oddball who picked the right answer. I saw another similar experiment where they, <clears throat> they uh, put a group of people in, they were in a speech. I don't know. There's probably a hundred people in the room and they were there t- attending like what was like a Ted talk or something. And the person speaking for the first half of the speech gave a really good speech. But then the second half of the speech, he started speaking gibberish on purpose. Okay. He started saying things like, and, uh, you know, it's raining cats and hats and gibberish uh, tangerines are falling from the sky. And he would just say things like that uh, that didn't make sense at all. And people started looking around like, hmm, okay, what is he saying all of a sudden? And then he ended the speech, you know, after saying all these things that didn't make sense at all. It was just gibberish. He ended the speech and they had two people that were plants. Uh, They were part of the experiment. They stood up and they started clapping. Yeah, yeah, giving a, a standing ovation. And when they did that and they were so exuberant, everybody else was like, okay. So they stood up and started giving a standing ovation. And they asked people after, why did you stand up and give a standing ovation to the guy's speech? And they said, well, they didn't want to be the only one just sitting down. Um, You know, even though they're like, what is he talking about? What is he saying? Doesn't make sense. They didn't think his speech warranted a standing ovation. They were still confused. They, they, They didn't want to be the only one sitting down. And so what I'm trying to show you is how the enemy uses fear, fear and isolation. And the, this fear of you being alone is how people will conform. People don't want to be the only one. I think out of that whole crowd, there was one woman who didn't stand up. She's like, I ain't standing up for this. I don't know what that guy's talking about. He, this don't deserve no standing ovation. But that is how our culture is. Most people will conform because they don't want to stand out. They don't want to be alone. And there is this fear of being alone. There is this fear that I'll be the only one. If I do this, if I say this, if I don't go along with the crowd, if I don't go uh, along with what everybody else is saying, what everybody else is doing, I'll, I'll be the only one. And everyone will be looking at me. All eyes will be on me. Everybody will wonder, why aren't you doing what we're doing? Now, those are just experiments. But what we're facing today is not an experiment. It is real. So with that, there, is, there would be no risk in those type of situations if they were just to say, I'm going to sit down. I'm not going to clap. Or I'm going to pick this one. There is no risk involved really not much right what, what's going to happen to them you mean are they they're not going to be uh, ostracized from society because they picked this line and everybody else picked this one you know but that's how much pressure comes from culture that you know we call that peer pressure that is how serious it is that even though not much is at risk People are really uh, are willing to bypass what they even think on the inside because everybody else is doing it. 
They're willing to just conform, even though inside they're thinking, well, I thought it was this, and it doesn't make sense, but everybody can't be wrong. Everybody can't be making a mistake. Everybody can't be dumb, right? So there's something I'm missing, so people will conform. Do you guys see that? And so that is just an experiment. But today, the experiment is real. The enemy is, is real, and he is really targeting uh, us today in the church, and he wants us to conform. And so conformity is the plan of the enemy, okay? This is not something that is new in the culture. Conformity is the, the plan of the enemy. He wants us, the church, to be conformed to the way the world thinks, to the way the culture operates, and he wants us thinking so much like them that we are silenced, into conformity. And that is the biggest goal of the enemy is to silence us Christians. One of the most notable atheists of our day said this, religion, if I said his name, you guys would know who who it is. He said, religion must die in order for mankind to live. See, now, now I preface this by saying that the enemy, our wrestle is not against flesh and blood because I want you guys to understand that the enemy is, has deceived these people. The enemy has tricked these people and he uses these people to, uh, just like the Lord has ministers in the earth, he has his servants, he has his ministers and that preach the gospel, that preach the good news, so does the enemy. And he uses philosophers. He uses the media. He uses movies. He uses TV. He uses music to get his message out so that we conform, so that we are tempted to conform, okay? And one of the greatest, one of the most known atheists today said this, religion must die in order for mankind to live. See, the enemy, he hates us. He hates us. And so he know he can't just destroy us. He can't just take us out but he seeks an entryway. And there's different ways that we can allow him in. There's different ways that we can give him place. And the way we're talking about is conformity, is conforming, okay? So these same people, these, some of these atheists, uh, atheists, they believe that Christians like us that were idiots. They ha- and they, they've said these things, that they believe that we are terrorists. And, and some of the most notice, notable philosophers of, uh, that people adhere to in their teachings, they believe these things. They believe that religion is the scourge of society. Karl Marx famously said that religion, Karl Marx of Marxism said that religion is the opium of the people. And so when he said that opium is a, you know, a narcotic, a drug, and when he was talking about that, he was talking about that religion was used by those empowered to oppress the workers, okay? It was used by the, the, those in power to oppress the workers, but it made the workers uh, feel better about their oppression when they couldn't afford opium, when they couldn't afford drugs, something to take their mind, all right? And so he thought that by removing the blanket of religion, you know, the the crutch of religion, that people would realize their terrible condition and revolt against religion. 
they would revolt against it. And his Marx, Marxist communist dream was that people would revolt against religion and it would be abolished. And workers would realize, hey, uh, we're happy being equal and we don't need religion anymore. Okay. And so after Marx came on the scene uh, in Russia, uh, many people started following his teaching. Many people, he had many followers in Russia that started adhering to his teachings. And what that resulted in was them uh, embracing his teachings and taking religious teachings out of schools from the school systems. Uh, they started doing things like, and they would criticize anybody that would, or they would punish anybody, I should say, that would criticize atheistic teachings and philosophies or agnostic teachings. They would criticize those people and, and they would ostracize those people. Okay. And um, I wrote some of these things down that they began to suppress and, and, and persecute Christianity. And the Soviet Union at that time, um, where this came up, the control and suppression of religious belief was, uh, they begin to eliminate theological schools. And they, the thought was, if we label religion as superstitious and as backwards, we could abolish religion. We could get rid of it. And this thinking started to become very prevalent. All right to the point where they burned down 100,000 churches in Russia. The schools and media were immersed and propagated with scientific atheism. All right. And <laughs> it's interesting to see the things that are going on today and the things that have already happened. Uh, theological schools, they were closed. Church publications were prohibited and clergymen were sentenced to death. Now, this may seem like, man, that must have happened a long time ago. No, it, this happened within the last hundred years. Between 1917 and 1935, 130,000 Orthodox priests were arrested. And of those 130,000 Orthodox priests that were arrested, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, 95,000 of them were executed. Okay? And the reason why I bring this up is because I want you to understand that this Marxist communist thinking is prevalent today. It, it, it's not something that is gone. Okay? And this is what the enemy uses. All right, this is not something, this, this happened in history. This isn't some conspiracy or anything like that. Uh, this is something, I mean, I remember Brother Hagen prophesied about this. I, I forgot when he prophesied about it, if it was in the, the 60s or, or when he prophesied. Um, it might have been the 80s. I, I, I should have looked up that prophecy. But the Lord told him and he prophesied that atheist, atheistic communism would be on the rise. Okay. And so this is not conspiracy. I'm not a conspiracy theorist for those that are wondering. No, I don't. I, I, you know, I have to see the enemy at work and see it in the word of God. And there's just some things that you see that what he's already accomplished in history. I mean, this is undeniable facts in history. 
that wasn't the, you know, what caused that to happen? We need to be aware of the enemy's strategies, right? We need to be aware. And so the, the goal of the atheists and the goal of these people are to dismantle your belief system. They, that is their goal. I, I was listening to one um, pastor talk one time, and he was saying when he was in college, when he went to college, one of his professors was an atheist and found out he was a Christian, and he pointed him out in front of the whole crowd, and he said, my goal is to completely dismantle everything you believe. He, he pointed him out and said that in front of everybody. And so this, they want our voices marginalized. They want our voices to be silenced. They want us to adhere to their teachings. They want us to adhere to the way they think and, and, and be conformed and just shut up and go away. That's what they want. One famous philosopher gave a speech. He was lecturing on the, the freedom of expression. And I know this is a little different as far as what we're doing, but there's times where we need to understand what's going on, what the enemy's doing. You know, we can't just have messages of faith and, and overcoming. Yeah, we're overcomers and we're faith and, and faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And no matter what's going on in the, in the world and in the culture, we are still going to believe God. We're still going to overcome. We'll, we're still going to have the victory in every area of our lives but we still need to be on guard for how the devil is deceiving people and how he would try to deceive us, okay? And how he influences people. But one famous philosopher gave a speech, he was lecturing on the freedom of expression, okay? So he was lecturing on the freedom of, ex of expression and he agreed that, and this was in 1997, famous philosopher, he agreed that there should be a freedom of expression and he argued for the freedom of expression. He said, but except, and he said, this might surprise you, I do believe that there is an area where we should not allow freedom of expression. And he said this, and he said, and my purpose with that speech, with his speech was to argue in favor of censorship, censorship. He said, against moral and religious education, and especially the education a child receives at home, where parents are allowed, even expected, to determine for their children what counts as truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Children, I'll argue, have a human right not to have their minds crippled by exposure to other people's bad ideas, no matter who they, these other people are. Parents correspondingly have no God-given license to enculturate their children in whatever ways they personally choose, no right to limit the horizons of their children's knowledge, to bring them up in an atmosphere of dogma and superstition, or to insist they follow the straight and narrow paths of their own faith. In short, children have a right not to have their minds addled by nonsense, and we as a society have a duty to protect them from it. So we should no more allow parents to teach their children to believe, for example, in the literal truth of the Bible or that the planets rule their lives, then we should allow parents to knock their children's teeth out or lock them in a dungeon. Now notice he is comparing teaching children the word of God, teaching them the Bible to knock in to child abuse, basically. And now this is the way 
The enemy has deceived these people to think. See, this is the way the enemy is getting in, and this is how he has destroyed nations. He has destroyed civilizations. He has warped people's minds to think that the word of God, that the truth of God is superstitious, is all a lie, is all false. Okay? If you get enough people thinking that, and you get enough people believing that way, you plant that seed and people accept that, what happens? They're against anybody who's teaching it. And they're telling, no, that's hate speech. Don't preach the word of God. That is oppressive. And that is what the enemy is trying to do. He is trying to quiet and silence the church. Go to first, uh, actually go to John 15. Now, we're, this is not for us to fear, okay? There's no, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sign. We don't have to fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is on our side. There is nothing for us to fear, all right? In the end, we know we win. He's coming back for a victorious, triumphant church, all right? But we still need to understand what is going on. We still need to understand what has happened throughout history, and we are not redeemed from persecution. And we need to understand that, that we can't pray persecution away. We can't say, Lord, keep me from persecution all my life. Hide me under the shadow of your wings so that I never am hated and no one ever mocks me for my faith. No, that is not what God protects us from. He doesn't. Now, he, he can maneuver us and lead us out of certain situations, Okay. But there does come a time where you have to, uh, have to stand up in your faith and be bold in your faith. But why does the world hate us? Why does the culture hate us? And John 15, you guys there? John 15, uh, I should have turned there too. John 15, 18. <clears throat> It says this, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of this world, but I have, but I'm sorry, but because you are not of this world, of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the world hates us because we are not of this world. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had, uh, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hates me hates my father also. So he says that they have no cloak for their sin. Now, what he's saying is there's no excuse for their sin. If Jesus, because if Jesus did not come and reveal who he was and who the father was, they could be ignorant they would be ignorant. That means that they wouldn't be found guilty of rejecting him and of denying that he is the Messiah. But because he did come 
and he did tell them who he was. He did explain to them who he was. They are guilty and they have no excuse of their sin, okay? They can't say, well, Jesus, if you would have told us that you were the son of God, then we would have accepted you and we would, uh, you know, but they did or Jesus did tell them who he was. And so because of that, they have no excuse for their sin, okay? And that is why they hate Jesus, and that is why they hate us, because we accepted Jesus, and they have rejected him. That is why the world hates us. That is why the world hates Jesus, because we have accepted Jesus, and they have not. So they may not even understand that, they may not even comprehend all that, but they hate you and I because we have been accepted by God and they have not been. Now they could be, but because they've rejected them or rejected the Lord, they are not accepted by him. It says this in um, 1 John 3, 11. You, you don't have to turn there. It says, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Do you see that? Why did Cain kill his brother? Why did he kill him? Well, number one, it says he belonged to the evil one. He belonged to the devil. And number two, because his own actions were evil and what his brothers were righteous. See, Cain did not give an acceptable offering to the Lord, but Abel did. And actually the Bible says in Genesis that uh, the Lord had respect unto Abel's offering, but he did not respect Cain's offering. Why is that significant? Because and he, he actually said to Cain, he said, if, you know, why are you angry? Why is your face down? If you do right, will I not accept you? But if you do wrong, sin is at the door. See, why did Cain hate his brother? Because Cain was not accepted by God and his brother was. Abel was accepted by God, but Cain was rejected. But he could have been accepted by the Lord. You guys see that? The Lord could have accepted. See, what is the text of our scripture? The first verse of Romans 12.1. It says that we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, right? Holy and acceptable to God. When you are living an acceptable life before the Lord, when you are living a life that the Lord accepts and you are endeavoring to please him, the world is going to notice that and they are going to hate you for that. That is why the enemy, because it, now understand, it's the enemy behind it, okay? The enemy, he is working in Cain. Why is he working in Cain? Because the Lord has rejected the enemy. The Lord has rejected the devil. And so 
the devil is behind this. He is the one who is not accepted by the Lord. He is the one who has been kicked out of heaven. He is the one who God no longer accepts. And so he is the one that, and it's his own fault, but he is the one behind this. He is the one that is causing this anger and this murderous rage inside of a brother that because God accepts him, I'm angry with him and I hate him to the point I want to murder him. Do you see that this is what's going on? Are you guys seeing this? This is what's going on in our culture that the Lord has accepted us and he has not accepted the world. Now, I hope you guys differentiate what I'm saying. He has saved the world. He has come and paid the price for the world. He loves the world. But if you are not living a life acceptable to the Lord, what does that mean? You are not being accepted by him until you receive what he's done for you and you live a life acceptable to him. Do you see, do you guys see that? Okay. So this is not, don't, don't. Go off, let your mind go off on a tangent saying, thinking that I'm saying that he's rejected them of salvation. No, it's just their lives as they currently are. When they reject Jesus, they reject his acceptance. You guys hear that? When you reject Jesus, you reject his acceptance. Okay. And this is why the world hates us. All right. It, the world hates that there are people like us, that are willing to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice, what does that mean? We are willing to say, Lord, I'll lay down my dreams, I'll lay down my goals, I'll lay down my desires, I'll lay down the things that I want to do for whatever you want to do. I want to please you. I want to live a life acceptable to you. They cannot stand that. That angers them. That gets them upset. And again, it's the enemy behind it, okay? But because they are choosing not to live a life, life acceptable to the Lord. There are, there are many people and Christians, sadly, that know that the Lord is real. They know that Jesus is real. They know that he's died for them, but they are choosing to not lay down their lives for him. They're choosing to say, no, I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. I want no one telling me what I need to do. I want no one lording over my life. I want no one in control of my life. And so they have rejected his acceptance. And because of that, they hate us. Okay. But like I said, God is merciful. He's merciful. And just like Cain, if he would have done right, and, and switched his mindset and said, I'm going to give an acceptable offering. I'm going to do something that God respects. He would have been accepted by God and there would have been have no reason for him to kill his own brother. All right. Go to Daniel chapter one. Daniel chapter one. I, what do we do in a world that hates us and a culture that hates us and they want us to conform and they want to silence us. What do we do? See, the, the devil, he wants us to be reconditioned to the way we think. Just like we're supposed to renew our minds with the word of God, the enemy is trying to renew our minds in a different way. Okay? Daniel chapter 1. 
You guys there? So we went there. Daniel chapter one. Now I don't have time to go through the whole background of Daniel, but just understand that um, Daniel takes place, or the book of Daniel. <clears throat> um, King Nebuchadnezzar, you guys heard of him. King Nebuchadnezzar is king of, of, of the Babylonian king. And how this came about, just real quick, is that there was a battle in 605 BC. And Babylon now is the world power, okay? They are, the Babylonians are the country king nebuchadnezzar is the man in charge uh you know there was the battle of uh Kargamish, i think it was in 6 605 bc and where the egyptians were uh, overthrown by the babylonians as well as the remnants of the assyrian army and so now that the egyptians are out of the scene uh king nebuchadnezzar babylon is the world power is the in, the in the middle east and they attack jerusalem okay and they have uh, attacked jerusalem and taken captive the people of jerusalem and so now king nebuchadnezzar wants some servants to bring into his palace and so we'll start off with there go to verse four it says children in whom was no blemish but well favored and skillful, uh, gifted in all wisdom. I'm reading from New King James. It says, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them, so that the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now before among now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, I want you to notice what Nebuchadnezzar is doing with these Hebrew boys. There's three things that, that I can see that he's doing, okay? Um, number one, he has isolated them, isolated them. He has taken them from their homes. He has taken them from their families, from their parents, from, from their friends. He has taken them from the, from the temple. He has taken them from their religion, uh, religious influence, and he has placed them in the palace. So he has isolated them away from their heritage, away from their culture, away from the way they grew up, and he has isolated them into a new environment, into a new culture, okay? They're captives. Remember that. This is not their choice. They have been cap they have been taken captive, okay? And these are they're just young teenagers at this time. All right. We we've heard these stories before. Um, and then number two I see is that he has re-educated them, or we could say indoctrinated them. He has indoctrinated them. So they're not it says here that they're going to speak, teach them the language. 
but they're also going to learn the literature. Other, uh, other um, people that study the scholars know that there, this was schooling, that they were going to teach them the way of the Chaldeans, which uh, the, the, in, in Babylon at that time, there were many false gods that they served, many false pagan gods. They're, they were into magic, divination, fortune-telling, astronomy. Um, and so these were the things that they would have learned. They would have learned the culture and the ways of the Babylonian system. And they would have learned their gods. Do you guys see that? That they are indoctrinating, they are re-educating them. They are, uh, uh, and this was a three-year program. It says that this was three years that was, <laughs> that was happening, Okay. It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? This was a three-year re-education program to teach them the Babylonian way, all right? And so they wanted them, they wanted them to be so different from their culture. They wanted them thinking so different that they no longer think like the way they used to think. And so they, they had to do this three years. It's not something you could just do in one moment, in one month. This is something that you have to be immersed in for three years, okay? And you're away from your family. And in number three, assimilate. So he wanted to isolate them, re-educate them, and assimilate them. Assimilate, how did he, do, how did he get them to assimilate? Or how was he trying to assimilate them? Well, he changed their identities. He changed their name. Daniel, which means God is my judge, was changed to Hananiah. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Daniel, which means God is my judge, was changed to Belteshazzar, which means prince or keepers of Bel's treasure. Bel was one of their chief Babylonian gods. Okay? Um, Hananiah, which means God has favored or grace and all these names daniel el l uh that these have to do with the deity of god the names of god um and now they are taking what they are named and giving them a new name so hananiah his name became shadrach which means inspired or illuminated by the sun god now there's very now there's different um scholars you know disagree on some of what these names mean but they all pretty much agree that it has to do with the pagan gods okay and there may be variations when we say no it's not the sun god it's the moon god or or, or different variations but um they were taking away their identity is the is the main thing mishael who is which means who is like god or who is as god was meshach which is worship of planets the goddess of like Venus. And Azariah is, which means who Jehovah helps or help of the Lord was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego or Nebo, which was a false God. So see their names back then are different than how we see our names today. Okay. Our name, our names today are just given to us with, with, you know, not much 
uh, of an identifying uh, of identifier connected to it. You know, when we say people's name, we are not thinking, you know, if your name means the brave one, we are not thinking when we say your name, brave one, you know, right? Or we don't see you and say beautiful flower if that's what we're it, just because we named you that. But back then when they were named biblical names, it gave them their nature and their identity. And so now this is being stripped away from them and they are calling them something completely different. They're trying to conform them to, the, to their God and to their culture and to the way they think. You know, And I see this even in our culture in our day and age with Christians that they, for some reason... They want to identify and use terms that the world wants to use. And I understand about being evangelistic. I understand that there's times that we may use some of these terms because that's what people understand. And, and people will hear these terms and it may, you know, give us credibility with them where they, you know, want to have us come speak and where we can have an influence. So I understand that, but there's just some things that are unnecessary to do and unnecessary to conform to. Okay. Now, you know, like today, this is one of the things that kind of annoy me is that everybody today is a life coach um, you know, ministers, I'm talking about preachers, pastors, I'm a life coach, or I'm a thought leader, or a lifestyle guru. What's wrong with just being called minister of God, or servant of God? What's wrong with that? Any thought that you had that was good, that helped people came from the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm a thought leader. What does that mean? You're a thought leader. You don't have no original thoughts. They came from the Holy Spirit or, or they came from the enemy. And so people are always trying to, you, you're, you know, you see people's, uh, you know, under their avatar, life coach, lifestyle guru. What in the world is a lifestyle guru? You ain't no guru. Most of these people ain't doing what they're telling other people to do. They ain't living the way they're telling other people to live. You know, you have these relationship coaches. They're not even married. They've never been in any relationship. Or if they have been in relationships, they've been in 100 relationships. And they've all failed. How are you a relationship guru? You know, so we, we have to be careful with the, we're taking on the identity of the world because it means something different. Thought leader. No, minister of God keeps you humble. Servant of God keeps you understanding who your source is, where your help comes from, where your grace and your strength comes from. And if you say anything good at all, you realize it came from the Lord because you are reminding yourself, I'm a servant of God. I'm a minister of the Lord. What are you? You, you a thought leader? No, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a minister of God. I, I'm not some life coach or lifestyle guru, okay? <laughs> so, so just so we understand, you know, there's just so many things that people are so willing to ad adopt and just take without thinking it through. What does this mean? What are the implications of what I'm what I'm uh, adapting to? Okay, but so he was assimilating them. He gave them new names and food to eat. Now think of these boys. These are young. Hebrew boys, they're away from home, they're away from mom and dad, 
and they have the opportunity to eat at the king's table in the the, the largest city, the, the, the world power of the Middle East, they have the opportunity to sit at the king's table. That would be intimidating, wouldn't it? That would be like, wow, look at this. I mean, when you walked into Babylon, um, if you ever look at some of the uh, uh, or read about Babylon and how big it was um, and how wide it was and how thick the walls were and how big the old entrance to the city was. This was something that they walked into and they're like, oh my goodness, wow. This is not like where we're from. This is, it's huge, it's amazing, it's glamour, it's, it's everything. It's like going to Vegas or something like that, you know? They, they entered into this new environment and they have the opportunity to eat at the king's table and the king's food, Okay. But I want you to notice what is going on in, Dan, in, uh, in verse 8, okay? It says, but Daniel, but Daniel. Notice there is a contradiction. But, da- but is a contradiction, right? It contradicts what was before it. But Daniel. And it says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, or that means his meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. See, notice that Daniel had a choice to make to conform or not to conform. And he's just a young teenage boy, but he resolves within himself. He purposes within his heart and he's determined, I am not going to be devoted to to this culture because I'm devoted to the Lord. My commitment is to the Lord and I'm going to live a life that's consecrated and acceptable to the Lord. Okay. And so even though you may isolate me and even though you may indoctrinate and re-educate me and try to assimilate me, there is one line I will not cross and I am not going to eat from the king's table. I am not going to eat the king's delicacies or the king's meat. Now you may say, why would he say I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food? Well, there's a number of different reasons why scholars believe that he would not eat from the king's table. Part of it is he was a Jew and they believed, uh, or these, these, the meat that was, um, would be given to them was meat offered to pagan gods and drink offered to pagan gods. And so that would have, that was a problem for the Jews. You can't, can't eat that stuff. Another reason is that by accepting the king's meat, and eating from the king's table would be implying fellowship and friendship with the king, with the culture, with the customs. You'd be accepting their customs. You'd be accepting friendship with them. Um, another reason would be that that food would weaken them and put them in a state where they were not able to make judgments the way they should. Now, whatever it is, I don't know exactly what it is, but what I do know and what we do see is that he said, I am not going to let this defile me. He considered it 
something that would defile him. He considered it something that he was not going to do and he was not going to conform to. See, there are a lot of things going on in the culture around us in the world around us and the world may try to tell us things and, and, and try to indoctrinate us and try to teach us things. They may try to isolate us and shame us, but there needs to be something in us that we set our heart and we purpose in our heart and we determine, no, there are certain lines I am not crossing. I may live in this culture and I may have to adapt to some things, but I am not going to disobey the Lord and I am not going to do things that are not acceptable to the Lord. There are certain things that I will not do if it defiles me. There are certain, there are certain movies I will not watch if it's going to cause me to be defiled. I'm not crossing. And see, these are things that you have to do beforehand, before you get in these situations. See, the power uh, of this determination happens inside, inside your heart, inside your spirit beforehand. You have to determine beforehand, I'm not conforming in this area. And so there may be things that you have to say, I'm not going that way. I, there may be friends that you have to give up. There may be websites that you can't go on. There may be movies and music that you cannot listen to and that you, that you say, nope, if I do this, this will defile me and it will lead me down a path that will cause me to conform to the culture. And if I conform to the culture, I'll become just like them. I'll become just like the world and I'll be someone that the enemy has a hold of and I'll be silenced and I won't be obedient and I won't be living a life that is acceptable to the Lord. See, the, the choices that we make today affect our tomorrow. The decisions that we make inside today affect our lives going forward affect every, all the decisions that we make, decisions of the heart affect our lives. And there's things that we need to look at in our lives and say, you know what? I'm not going to conform. I don't care what the world is saying. I don't care if the world is promoting this and saying that if I don't do this, I'm being a homophobe or I'm being intolerant or I'm being a racist. Now, we, may, we're, we're, we won't be called racist, but they'll call us a sellout or something like that, right? So, but that's the big thing. To, that's what the enemy tries to do. If they don't do this, we'll call them a name. We'll shame them. We'll embarrass them so that you have fear of being isolated, that you have fear of being the oddball, like those people in the experiment. You have fear of being the one that looks dumb and that you're not educated and that you don't know what's going on. No, there's some things that we have to say, nope, I will not conform. I don't care how it makes me look. I will not conform. Now, we're not going to be able to go into the rest of the story because there's some wisdom in the rest of this in what Daniel, uh, what Daniel did. But I want you to see how important what was going on here is that he purposed in his heart. We must purpose in our heart. And when we do purpose in our heart, I will say this, and we'll probably pick up next week on this, that when he purposed in his heart, the favor of the Lord came. When he purposed in his heart and he rejected something that would defile him, the favor of the Lord came. Promotion came. Okay? The Bible talks about that he'll make, when a man's ways please the Lord, he'll make all his enemies be at peace with them. All right? And so 
the, the point of today, though, is to see that we must purpose in our heart that we're not going to conform. See, anybody, any fish, any dead fish can go with the stream. But it takes a resolve, it takes a determination, and it takes a, a purpose in the heart that I am not going to go with the stream or go with the flow. I'm going against the flow. And, you're, and we're not doing it to be, you know, we're not trying to be mean. We're not doing it to be rebellious. If we re, we're going to see the rest of this, I think next week, you'll see that he's very respectful. He's very kind, but he's just very refusing to conform. He's like, no, I'm not conforming. I don't care if everybody talks like that. I don't care what you may try to teach me. I'm not conforming to this world. I'm not going to adapt to the customs of this world. I'm not going to eat something that will defile me. I'm not going to let something. See, food is something that when you eat it, it gets inside of you, right? He said, I am not going to let something get inside of me that would change my heart towards God. See, these they're all alone, these boys. They're away from home. Who's going to see it? God's going to see it. And they had chose that I'm going to live my life a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before the Lord. We hope this message has encouraged you today. For more information on our ministry or to donate, visit onewayministries.net.